It's Friday, January 26th, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Headline, fake images of Taylor Swift's swamp internet. Okay, but before today, real images of Taylor Swift swamped the internet, also swamped streamers, and swamped the most watched TV event of the year, which was last week's Kansas City Chiefs game that will soon be supplanted by this week's most watched TV event of the year, this week's Kansas City Chiefs game. These AI photos, maybe you saw them. I didn't think that was really Taylor doing all those things, any of those things. In fact, they seem like someone had photoshopped Taylor Swift's face on a body that would normally charge a premium for an, an OnlyFans peekaboo. And of course, it's a violation. It's horrible. I feel bad for Taylor, human being in the world who doesn't want to see that spread about herself. But I don't really totally understand what's so different about this, these images that we saw, versus the phenomenon of Taylor Swift and all sorts of Taylor Swift images, real or fake or inspired or demented, being everywhere and anywhere you want to or don't want to see them. Taylor Swift has been dominating every aspect of our field of vision in every way for at least a year now. Yes, There is now the AI angle, and I guess this technology makes it easier for an artist to generate those images, but even without looking, and I haven't, I know there are many, many graphic artists who are selling or trading or just producing very graphic images of Taylor Swift in a variety of poses, all of which would qualify as an encroachment into the neutral zone of good taste. Mostly it's AI panic driving the story. Okay, so the original images were generated by AI. They could have been generated many, many other ways. The dissemination wasn't an effect of AI. Mostly it's worry about AI driving the story. And also people are unbelievably, I would say, derangedly fascinated with Taylor Swift. But I think it's Mostly, why were all these stories out there? Was it because the pictures were out there? Or was it because people wanted to read a story about the pictures? Or maybe people were curious to see the pictures? Let us take the New York Times, host to a story decrying the widespread dissemination of these insulting pictures. In the last week, they've run about 11 stories about or mentioning Taylor Swift, six of them by my count were in headlines, so just a story about Taylor Swift. There was a story about threats to Taylor Swift. Man arrested twice in three days for stalking Taylor Swift. There was a story about the ubiquity of Taylor Swift. How often is Taylor Swift actually shown at NFL games? The answer is usually five times a game. There was a story about AI and Taylor Swift before this one. Test yourself. Which faces were made by AI? Taylor Swift, or a version thereof, was in there. And then, building on this story about threats to Taylor Swift, the ubiquity of Taylor Swift, and AI and Taylor Swift, a story about the threats to Taylor Swift because of her AI-generated ubiquity, explicit deepfake images of Taylor Swift elude safeguards and swamp social media. I guess it's an improvement on last month's New York Times, almost 5,000 word, let's call it an essay, fanfic, imagining that Taylor Swift was queer because wouldn't it be fun to the author if she were? That wasn't an AI-generated deepfake. That was a New York Times editor-generated deepfake. But it was all in good fun, except Taylor Swift and members of her team. Not the Kansas City Chief, the personal, but maybe the Chiefs, maybe the Chiefs. 
I'm sorry for Taylor Swift as a person, a little bit. It's a violation, sure. On the other hand, think about the ubiquity of deepfakes putting her in a position that is quite enviable. Basically, she can get away or engage in any behavior, have it photographed, and then later claim, no, it was just a deep fake. Who would gainsay that assertion? Now, a lesser celebrity, say a Kanye West or an Alec Baldwin, would not, could not be trusted with such power. But I think Taylor Swift can, because she is a queer icon. No, because she is under such constant surveillance already that she knows not to try. On the show today, Brian Kloss, joins us again. He is the author of Fluke. It is not about the fish. The subtitle is Chance Chaos and Why Everything We Do Matters. It's about how all the great explanations and the this caused that analysis may be right, but also may be wrong, but don't give up. That's the why everything we do matters part. And today we get into the flawed theories of social science and the role Brian's border collie plays. Brian Kloss up next. We're joined once more by Brian Kloss, author of Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Yesterday on the show, we got into and touched upon where he really wanted to go, and I take him in this part of the interview, a critique of the very social sciences he has given his life work to. Remember, we talked about the space shuttle yesterday and the O-rings holding up for the first few flights, but then essentially causing the explosion. To study such effects is to focus on process, and I began by asking Klaus about that. People in business or efficiency experts or even coaches talk about being process-oriented, but if the process yields a great success and everyone is toasting the previous iterations of space shuttles that worked, it's just very hard to say, to be the Cassandra saying, you guys have an O-ring problem. Now, the O-ring also, that gets into another concept you talk about, which is complexity versus what? Uh, being complicated, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, complexity- That seems complicated. Explain the difference between complexity and complicated. Yeah, so the, the, it sounds like they're very similar, but they're, they're radically different ideas. So something that is complicated is like a Swiss watch, right? Like it's got a lot of complicated parts, but we know exactly how it works. And if one part breaks, you just have to replace it and then the thing works, right? Complexity is totally different. This is a realm of science that's, that's I think, going to define a significant chunk of the 21st century. And it's basically saying we need to understand complex systems and human society is definitely a complex system. And this is where there's lots of adapting parts, right? So, you know, it's not like when a watch breaks, one component just picks up the slack and just does the thing that the component used to do, right? But human society is like that, right? When something breaks, there's all these adaptations, everything shifts. And so the the idea of complexity is this, this idea of trying to understand systems rather than individual components 
as a way to understand society. And I think, you know, when you look at economic models, most people who took economics, you know, you got the simple supply and demand curves. That is not complexity, right? It's a, it's a very warped view of how the, the economy actually works. And, you know, there's this guy who, who got a Nobel Prize in economics, Robert Schiller, and he wrote this book called Narrative Economics. And he's like, look, you know, we have all these like models, but like people make decisions based on stories. They make decisions yeah. based on what they're told, right? So like we have totally ignored this huge part of psychology when we try to understand modeling and it's why we're constantly wrong. So complexity is trying to basically synthesize all sorts of different ways of solving problems with a clear focus on the system being the most important thing, not just the individual parts. So tell me about another, uh, I always find that when there is a book that's based on social science, just a couple concepts, a couple takeaway concepts are always excellent uh, food for thought. Tell me about the difference between convergence and contingency. Yeah, so I love this. This is me borrowing something from evolutionary biology and transplanting it into human life and human society. So evolutionary biology has this debate between contingency and convergence. Very easy to understand. Contingency is where one thing changes and the whole system is radically different. So you've got the asteroid that knocks out the dinosaurs, right? If that asteroid had been a second late, the dinosaurs probably would not have gone extinct. It probably would have missed Earth and humans probably wouldn't exist, right? So that's contingency. Everything switches in that moment. Convergence is where there's some order, even though you know random things occasionally happen. And my favorite example of this is that if you were to take a, a human eye and stick it next to an octopus eye, they're actually extremely similar. And the reason for that is because it just works, right? Like the evolution has solved the same problem twice, even though there's like 400 million years of different evolutionary pathways between these two species. So I use this idea with what I call the snooze button effect. And the snooze button effect is you imagine Tuesday morning, you wake up, you're tired, you hit the snooze button. Then the tape of your life rewinds and you don't hit the snooze button. Now, if everything in your life unfolds basically the same, that would be a convergent moment, right? If it radically shifts from the snooze button, then it's a contingent moment. And my argument is that in the short time period, we probably won't notice that many differences from the snooze button effect or we won't be aware of them. But I do think it is always changing our lives, right? I think that every moment we have where we shift things slightly does have amplified consequences in the longer term. And that is also true, I think, in society. I think, you know, if Trump had picked a different running mate, you know, it, I think that the, the system would have been different. I think if there was, you know, a slight change in how Comey had decided to act right before 2016, the system would be slightly different. Maybe he would have lost. So, you know, I think there's all these things where we have these invisible pivots like the snooze button. If Anthony Weiner didn't get that one text message that day. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow calls. She still wants her fee for a sliding doors. It doesn't matter if you call it snooze button. We know what's going on. You're there in London. It's clearly happening. I do, re yeah, I do reference sliding doors in the text, I will say. <laughs> How could you not? Butterflies, wings, sliding doors. Yeah. So here you are. You've written, uh, I read your last book about dictators and uh, horrible people and corruption. And you come up with uh, very good scholarship to talk about the personality traits that make for, say, uh, someone who would be a cannibalistic dictator of the Central African Republic. Um, so what we could do, and this is also like with serial killers, why are serial killers serial killers? They tend to have these traits that are so common. You know, it's the dark triad with dictators and it's things like being abused as a child with serial killers. However, 99.999% of people with those traits do not become dictators in the third world or serial killers. And I, even though you 
uh, contemplated this and acknowledged this, I could imagine that it played upon your head. And not only that, but all your scholarship that leads up to that, that was predictive in uh, nature or that said, I think a January 6th type event, you didn't know the date it would happen. I think it'll happen. And you got that one right. So I would imagine that you spent a lot of time contemplating your analysis and your predictions and also how confident your field is. And as you went on walks with your dog and thought about these things during the pandemic and thought about how much we failed to get and how much we got wrong, that's where the seeds of fluke were born. Yeah, this is this is like a Sherlock Holmes level deduction, I would say. Um, <laughs> Look, I, I think that what happened is I was trying to set up models for extremely rare events because my PhD was about the origin story of coups, right? Where militaries take over, uh, you know, topple dictators and take power and so on. And like, you know, you you can come up with trends. You can say like, there's a pattern. Here's like six variables yeah. that, you know, are correlated with coups. And then you actually go to these countries and you interview the soldiers and you interview the generals. And it's like, one general was like, yeah, like he's, you know, he's, this guy slept with my wife. And you're like, oh, and that's like the origin story of the coup. And like another, <laughs> and another one is like, you know, quite literally in, in one of the coups I studied, they they tried to grab the, the the pant leg of this general to kidnap him, and he slipped through their fingers. And I think if they had gotten him, I think the country would have collapsed. I think it would have uh, toppled Zambia's government. So you know, I, 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 that was part of it. And then the other thing is, and I, I do mention this in the introduction. I tell this story from you know 1905 in Wisconsin where this woman, uh, it's a tragic story, she, she snaps and kills her four children and then kills herself in this farmhouse in, in 1905. And this is my great-grandfather's first wife. Um, and that's why I tell the story in the book. So he comes home, his entire family is dead, and he later remarries to what is my great-grandmother. So the combination of like, I found that out, by the way, when I was in my mid-20s. And this obviously is like, it's my origin story. It's like, mm -hmm. it's the reason you're listening to my voice right now. Um, so, you know, the combination of that personal side of like, okay, I feel a little bit like an accident. And then also being forced professionally to try to cram like an extremely impossible to predict complex system into a model that spits out an equation. It was just so uncomfortable to, to say it, here's how I think the world works. And I think, you know, so much of social science, I have a, I have a chapter title that's not going to make me any friends uh, with colleagues called the emperor's new equations. But I think so much of social science is, is sort of based on simplified assumptions that when we believe them to be the actual real world cause us to make serious mistakes. So I don't mind people modeling, right? I think modeling is fine. Yeah. It's like, you know, you have to try to understand things. The problem is when you start to think that the model is the world. And there's a lot of people who make that mistake in modern life. And that's the problem. If you wanted to adhere to the rules of social science and come up with your here's what causes a coup model and you didn't want to you didn't want to create academic fraud, you'd have been able to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, my Ph.D. had a quantitative side to it. I, I, I did make the equations. Right. But the thing is, you know, and this is something I say with, you know, with hindsight and, and, and transparency, I, I look at the model I made. A, I don't believe it to be very good. Uh, and B, when you actually look at what predicts coups, it's pretty much what a 12-year-old would think if you asked them the question. Really poor countries that have previously had coups. That, that's basically the, the strongest drivers of the model, right? And so I think a lot, you know, it's like we know that Norway is not going to have a coup. We know that like there's a, probably two dozen countries that are at great risk of having a coup. Can we predict which one? No. Can we predict when? No. So, you know, at some point, I think there's some acknowledgments we have to have that like, 
you know, social science and forecasting and so on just has certain limitations. There's like this concept I talk about in, in the book called radical mm-hmm, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a much larger realm of the world that is radically uncertain than we acknowledge, where no matter what past data we have, we simply cannot yeah. predict the future. And I think that's something that if we learned that lesson would be really, really helpful for us because there are some things that we can predict with very high accuracy, right? I mean, if you're trying to decide exactly which medicine to use in a very, you know, clear cut diagnosis, then yeah, like by hell, but you know, by all means, like optimize the hell out of that decision because it makes sense. This, you know, it's where the money ball stuff comes in, like baseball, Moneyball worked because it's a closed system that's highly predictable. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's about parceling out the parts of the world that we can predict and optimize from those that are radically uncertain. And I think there's a lot of people who don't know the barrier very well, and that's getting us into trouble. Yeah. So I have seen in social science things like the dictator checklist. And there's a, Bill Maher used to do it on a show. How much does Donald Trump, how, how many checks do we check off on the dictator checklist? I think like your coup model, that is flawed and doesn't tell us as much as maybe the progenitors of the checklist would have us believe. To the same extent, Barbara Walter, who's been on the show, and I think she has some great insight, she says, you know, I've studied hundreds or thousands, maybe hundreds of civil wars, and here are the circumstances that give rise to a civil war, and this makes me worried we're on the precipice of a civil war. I, too, greatly question that. I don't, I don't know about the predictive abilities. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one that I I think about sometimes is like political violence and assassinations, which are rare, you know, rare events that are hard to predict. I look at, you know, I study political violence for my PhD as well. I look at the factors in the United States. You have an authoritarian style demagogue who's a leader of a major political movement. You have 400 million guns for 330 million people. You have extremely violent rhetoric coming out from a political movement, demonization of various political figures being called communists and vermin and so on. I mean, these ingredients are highly correlated with political violence. And there hasn't been a high profile assassination, thank goodness, in the United States for a while. Now, why is that? I don't know. My answer, I think we got lucky. Yeah. But I, you know, so I think, I think there's stuff where like rare outcomes happen. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something where the problem is that, you know, then I say, you know, if I were to use the sort of more predictive side of things, I'd say, look, I, I think there's going to be significant political violence this year. If it doesn't happen, then people say, oh, you were wrong. It's like, well, I don't know. Sometimes you get lucky, right? Yeah. You know, on the other hand, Japan doesn't have those conditions. It's a much more placid society. And they just had a political assassination. On the third hand, in an earlier era when the United States was more normal in terms of its political parties and politics, and there was a lot of comedy, we had tons of political assassinations and Harvey Milk and Allard Lowenstein and people who we don't even talk about. So maybe I'm just citing the exceptions that test slash prove the rules, or maybe there's something to exactly what you're saying, the predictive abilities only go so far. No, but, but I, think, I think you're making exactly the right point, right? I mean, like, what should we do? Look at Japan and say, oh my God, they had a huge high profile assassination. We, what we should definitely not do is have like, uh, you know, good gun control and like, you know, a, a society that generally looks after itself with high levels of social trust. We couldn't do that because that causes socialist, you know, high profile assassinations. People learn the wrong lessons from these things. I mean, the correlations are very limited. They, they can tell us that, yeah, OK, like this might happen. But that, that's that's it. Because the thing is, and this is the, the sort of long tails of, of what are sometimes called stochastic events, right? Where they're seemingly random. Mass shootings are another one. I can tell you that mass shootings are more likely in the United States than places that have fewer guns. Yeah. I can't tell you whether one's going to happen next week or where it's going to happen. I can start to predict a regularity to them, 
because there are repeated events, but some events are completely one-off, right? And so when you have a single event that is not repeated, then trying to predict based on one event is impossible. It's like it's like if I have a coin flip, right? I can tell you over a thousand coin flips, whether it's going to be 50-50 heads or tails or not. If you tell me you have to predict the single coin flip, it's, impo- it's literally impossible for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is for these rare events, they apply the same logic of coin flips to what are repeated iterations like baseball games or things like that. Do you think the explanation uh, or phrase stochastic terrorism has been overapplied to sometimes just nasty rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think look, I, my view on this is that you have a very limited ability to draw a line from A to B. I would say in general, yes, we can say that when you have people in high profile positions inciting violence, that violence becomes more likely. Can't predict it, can't say where it's going to happen and so on. But the thing is like in uncertainty, you know, what you do then is you try to take your best shot of what you think will not happen. Or in other words, like how can we avoid this? So if you think there's even a possibility that by saying like, you know, my, my opponents are vermin, that some crazy person will go and kill them, maybe don't say that. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff where in the moment of uncertainty, you can't predict. I mean, it's like, it's just like with the snooze button. I can't tell you how my life will unfold differently on Tuesday if I hit the snooze button or if I don't. That doesn't mean that I should go out and jump in front of a car because maybe I'll get lucky, right? Yeah. Instead, you you play the odds. But those are in decisions you have to make. And I think these are the things where, you know, there's a difference, as I say, between the decisions you have to make and the decisions you need not make. I read your book and listen to everything you're saying as a corrective to the general gestalt of uh, the social sciences. It must have, much of the way of thinking must have very much bothered you and annoyed you. Do you think... Things like the replication crisis or this scandal with behavioral analysts, uh, behavioral economics, just faking their data. Is this part of what you're talking about? Are they born from some of the same places? Yeah, there's a there's a in, in this chapter later on in the book, I talk about this study that just I think really challenges social science. And it basically is where these teams of researchers were asked the exact same question with the exact same data, but they couldn't coordinate. Right. And what happened was uh a quarter of them found a positive effect, a quarter of them found a negative effect, and half of them found no effect, right? It was it was a standard distribution. <laughs> and the problem is that normally you don't have 78 teams of researchers asking the same question with the same data. Normally you have one. And then they find a positive effect, and then everyone says, oh, they've proven that this is yes. true, yes. right? So oh, this- be, I'll go beyond that. Normally there's just one, and they don't even happen to find a positive effect. All the incentives are there to have yes. a positive effect. What to look at, it will be funded if there is a positive effect. And if they find no effect, they don't publish. So add all that. Exactly, the, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I talk about publication bias in this chapter, because you're yeah. exactly right. This is a huge problem where, where the, the null effects just don't get published. So you know, the, the, the problem to me is that I think there's a lot of stuff where we just don't know. And we build these edifices in social science around, you know, accepted findings. And then someone repeats the study, you know, some of the time it's bad research practice. So the replication crisis is a solvable problem in the sense of if you're going to have, you know, uh, pre-registered data and you're not going to use 25 undergraduates for your psychology study, okay, we can fix that, right? Like we can, we can improve our methods. Some of the stuff though, like this study is like, hold on, like these people were operating in good faith. Like they were all operating in good faith, trying their best on the same exact data. And they got 
radically different answers to the same question and they can't explain it, right? So I, th- th- this is not to say that social science is worthless. I think it's a question that we have to ask is like, what is this for? And yeah. what I argue is that we should be doing a heck of a lot more prediction, even though we're going to get it wrong all of the time, but it forces us to falsify our models. And basically we never have to do that, right? You just have theories that live on forever. I mean, you have like, you know, supply side economics is like this zombie theory that just continues to live on because you can't fully disprove it because people can always say, oh, well, the model was a little bit off. And so I think we need to gravitate towards a world where we can actually disprove some social science models with predictions. Um, so if you had thought, if you had written this book first and then, I don't know, did your PhD and wrote the corruption book, how might those have changed? I don't know if I would have finished. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is one of the issues. I, I have felt like a fish out of water in, in my discipline for a long time. And I think it's because when I, you know, when I go to conferences and somebody puts this equation on the screen that has like 47 X's and Y's and Z's and all this and, you know, it, I look at it and it's like trying to explain, you know, whether someone will join a rebel movement or, you know, whether... That equation is literally in your book. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I put it there because I was like, I wasn't trying to pick on the authors. It was just an indication of a standard sort of um, political science journal that you open up. I mean, I basically opened a random one and that was the equation. So, I mean, it just, I look at it and I think anyone who actually goes and talks to these people doesn't see the world this way, right? And this is the thing where like, I'm in this very small minority of uh, political scientists that, uh, you know, that that thinks that elite interviews are a way of doing political science, which is to say speaking to someone and saying like, why did you do the coup? Um, Not just relying on data. And there's a huge quantitative trend in social science. I still use quantitative methods, right? I think there's a place for them. But I think there's, you know, when you go and talk to people, the messiness of personalities and vendettas and history and all these stuff, they wallop you over the head. And then you go to like plug these into numbers and you're like, where'd where'd all that stuff go, right? Yeah. But I read a lot of sociology and they rely on ethnographies and I question them. I think that they are so often just a reflection of what the person was looking for as well. Yeah. And this is is why, you know, what, what a lot of people in social science say is like, we need mixed methods. We need to like blend quantitative and qualitative data together. And no one actually does it very, very often because the incentives are, are very much not aligned for that. I mean, we're in the weeds here. Right, right. This is why you like Schiller, who wins the Nobel Prize for quantitative methods, but says it's all a story, guys. Yes, yeah. exactly. Now, I mean, I think, you know, there, there is a way forward here, though. And I think there is stuff where social science has to have, a, to me, a big debate amongst itself that says, what 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 is the purpose of this, right? I mean, political but science- what's the crisis that'll bring about that debate? I don't see that happening. I think that they're doing pretty well. And uh, sorry to be overly cynical yeah. and maybe to sound like Elise Stefanik here, but a lot of people who have tenure or in the social sciences have their sinecure and this is all they know. And what would force them to change? I, I you know, I'm I'm giving my <laughs> attempt, right, with this book. The answer is fluke. By, by, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I spark a debate a little bit, right? Yeah. Because I think there is a question, I mean, like, a lot of political science is not read by anyone who's not a political scientist. And like I signed up for this world and this life that I have because I want to solve problems. I think a lot of problems are avoidable. And I look at a lot of what we're doing and I'm like, I don't think that we are helping solve problems for a lot of things. I mean, some of the time we are, but I, you know, I can't name the big achievement of political science. And like, that's a problem, right? I can't say like, oh, if, if it wasn't for political science, then this would have happened and would, we'd be all, you know, we'd all be dead. I mean, th- that, you know, when you look at things like medicine, of course, there's a million examples. I think political science needs to find a way to, to be more relevant. And this is something where, you know, as I say, I'm not going to win any friends in my discipline, but I think it's the wake up call. Most people ignore us. And I, I, I think there's a reason for that. 
So um, yeah, maybe we can do a little bit better. Do you think if you had a different breed of dog, Fluke would come out differently? I'm serious about that question. You have a border collie. I do. They're a working dog. They require a lot of intervention, walks, and attention. So what if you had a lazy lay-about-the-house dog? Might Fluke be different or non-existent? This is one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked. So um, I I talk about Zorro, my border collie, and his origin story a little bit in Fluke because there was a thing called the Great Collie Ear Trial where in Scotland they standardized the ears of border collies and they're all derived from a single dog called old hemp on the scotland english border but to answer your question yes i actually do think that this would be different and the reason for that is because a lot of the ideas came to me while i was walking him and he needs a significant amount of walking right and i think like if i'm just sitting around in front of my computer if i didn't have a dog if i didn't go out and explore and so on I think I would have had different ideas. Now, would the book have been better? Possibly, because I might have had more time to work on it, right? <laughs> but like, I do, I, I, I quite literally think there's a, there's a, the third part of the subtitle is why everything we do matters. And I don't mean this is like some cute self-helpy phrase. I think that literally everything is rediverting our trajectories slightly all the time. And I think the choice of a dog is absolutely something that has changed my life and has changed my thinking about a lot of ideas uh, I had while writing the book. Do you know the etymology of fluke as a chance occurrence? No, this is, I would love to learn that. I think you're about to tell me. Well, this is so interesting, right? So it comes from a snooker term or a billiards term in the 1800s. And fluke in anchors also means something like flat. And so if you read about the etymology, they're saying maybe it has something to do with the old Germanic word for a flattening of chances or the way a whale's tail flukes in the water. But you know what they're doing, right? You know what they're doing with those etymologies. They're sort of ironing out the randomness of history and telling a neat and tidy story. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It is a fluke that fluke is called fluke. And they're coming up with all these stories to explain it that are something other than a fluke. I love that. Thank you. I I did not know that. I did not look up the etymology, so I appreciate it. Now I won't be uh, caught out next time I get asked that. In his just excellent new book, Brian Kloss writes about fluke, chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. Thank you, Brian. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor, Masterworks Advisors, focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue-chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors, LLC, and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks. And now the spiel. A word of caution for Israel from The Hague. 
But the actual requirements, somewhat vague. The International Court of Justice gave an expected preliminary ruling on charges of genocide against Israel for its conduct in the war in Gaza. The exact language in the 15 to 2 decision was that, quote, at least some, end quote, of the claims that Israel is violating the Convention Against Genocide are plausible. This does not come with the requirement of a ceasefire. Such a requirement would not be enforceable by any outside body. It is not the worst possible outcome for Israel. It was somewhat expected, but it does put Israel in a tougher position to prosecute the war than it was in a day ago. My Hague vague line is explained by some of what I just said, and I do have to admit it is a slightly inappropriate quip, a line from a podcaster uninvolved in the fight. Whereas Itmar Ben-Gavir tweeted, Hague Schmeg. And as much as I love a bit of faux Yiddish rhyming slang, that was inappropriate because Itmar Ben-Gavir is Israel's minister of justice. And not only are such words inappropriate, they are part of what got us here in the first place. The court's president, American Joan Donahue, read out the entire 15-2 ruling, including a part where the court credited international experts who documented discernibly genocidal and dehumanizing rhetoric coming from senior Israeli government officials. I would say, and I have been saying, that Ben Gavir, his fellow right-wing minister, firebrand Bezalel Smotrich, are best understood as provocateurs who should not be taken seriously. But they are government ministers. They do sway large parts of the Israel public. And they are also essential pieces to Netanyahu's coalition government. Thus far, my rebuke to them has been they're not doing Israel any favors. However, I also want to argue that the reason that they're doing all this is purposeful. They don't want to do Israel as a whole favors. They want to help themselves. And it's not beside the point that Israel might not be benefited. It is not irresponsible collateral damage. Well, if Israel's imperiled by what I say, so be it. That is a necessary consequence and a desired consequence of them saying such things. It's a little bit of a subtle point. Follow me here. First of all, the court also quoted Yoav Gallant, who is the defense minister, and he's a guy who should be taken seriously. They said that he spoke of genocidal intent, but I think that's totally inaccurate. I think that those accusations are unwarranted, belied by the context of what Gallant said, belied by the actions that Gallant and the military took. But Gallant was engaged. I would say that Gallant, in talking about the siege and taking the fight to Gaza, by which he made clear he meant ISIS, he was engaged in a civilization's old act of rousing his troops with martial imagery. Smotrich, Ben Gavir, some other members of the Knesset and ministers want to be heard saying these things. They intentionally say these things. They don't let emotions get the better of them. It's all a strategy. They don't regret their utterances. They want to isolate Israel. They want to turn Israel into a pariah state because then 
at the moment of greatest desperation, who will the public turn to? The figures who have been most desperately carving out the most extremist position. See, they'll say, we told you the world was against us. And they'll buttress their claims by saying, see, the world is issuing decrees against Israel. The decrees were based in part on their claims. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those are the Old Testament Jewish prophets. Smotrich, Ben-Gavir, they're the self-fulfilling Jewish prophets. And you know who agrees with me? Quite bravely, I would add, Aaron Barak. Barak is Israel's former president of their Supreme Court. He's a giant, a legal giant. He's an opponent of Netanyahu. It was kind of risky for Netanyahu to put him on the court. And he was one of the two justices who dissented from the court's overall findings, but in dissent on every point. He joined a portion of the ruling that required Israel to take seriously incitement to genocide among speakers within Israel. I'll quote from him. I have voted in favor in the hope that the measure will help to decrease tension and discourage damaging rhetoric. I have noted the concerning statements by some authorities, which I am confident which will be dealt with by the Israeli institutions. That's very moral. That's somewhat risky. If Barack wanted to get elected to anything domestically, he might just say Israel and genocide in the same sentence with Israel as perpetrator? What a farce. He might not deign to dignify the proceedings with a yes vote on anything. He might blithely tweet Haig Schmeg. But that would hurt Israel. So he didn't do it. He said the right thing, which is we have to keep saying the right thing. And also by implication, avoid doing the wrong thing. But at least we have to, and it is within our control, not give our enemies ammunition to talk about the intent of genocide, which we don't have. I do not know if doing what Barack is advising or taking the stance he's taking will actually help change a justice's mind down the road. I don't know if that is anything close to a guarantee of justice in the eyes of outside adjudicators. I do think that every Israeli should know or have it made clear to them that there are wrong things to say, wrong ethically, morally, and strategically. Much like the statements of the far right that are self-fulfilling, the righteousness of the far right is best understood as self-righteous, which does not serve the country as a whole. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by the quaint Mallards, Corey Wara, producer, Joel Patterson, senior producer, Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise on The Gist, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, And thanks for listening. <laughs>